Welcome back, everyone. And as promised, a little background on the hero of this story, John Smith, and why he was chosen for this mission. When you start to compare Smith to most everyone else on the 1607 voyage, you'll see that there was no comparison. It was like dropping 007 into a ring full of dime store dandies. The problem was that most of the leaders were out for gold. Some, like Winfield, were actually investors, and they knew how to band together. And they weren't going to take orders from this Eagle Scout whom the lesser gentry all treated like some kind of a freaking hero. Let's take a look at what we know about Captain Smith. John Smith was believed to have been born in 1579 or 1580 in Lincolnshire, England, which would place him at age 27 when he arrived in Jamestown. Although Pocahontas did show a lot of affection for Smith, he treated her like any 27-year-old man would treat a 12-year-old niece. Sorry, Disney. At age 17, Smith, after serving a merchant's apprenticeship, decided on a life of combat and served with the English army abroad. Working as a soldier for hire, Smith eventually embarked on a campaign against the Turk in Hungary, where he established a pretty solid reputation as a soldier and warrior. There he was captured in battle and enslaved. He was sent to what is now Istanbul and served a kind-hearted mistress who, not wanting Smith to be her slave, sent him to her brother's home, where he was forced to do farm work. After receiving pretty bad treatment from his master, Smith killed him and escaped, eventually returning to England as a hero in the early 1600s. After he returned, he met Captain Bartholomew Gosnold, who was involved with organizing a colony sponsored by the Virginia Company of London that would be sent to America. Smith was made part of a multi-person council that would govern the group, whose purpose was to generate profit in the form of mineral wealth and goods. He was given special training in the Indians' language and customs by Richard Hakelet, who had compiled all the information on the Roanoke Indians from previous expeditions, and given training in cartography. Smith's mission being to identify tribes, waterways, and identifying features throughout the Chesapeake Bay and southward. By the time the ship sailed, Smith was fully trained and battle-hardened. The investors saw him as a man most likely to be able to defend the colony from Indian attack, therefore defend their investment, and named him as one of the Council of Seven, along with Captain Bartholomew Gosnold, Captain John Ratcliffe, Edward Maria Wingfield, George Kendall, and John Martin. And we'll be hearing a lot more about them as we go forward. And now... Part 3 of the story of Captain John Smith and the early exploration of Virginia. Chapters 4 and 5 Early Days at Jamestown The colonists' hearts were buoyant with hopes of a bright future in this lovely land to which they had come in its loveliest season. All set to work in a holiday spirit. The council planned fortifications. The rest cleared the ground of trees, made nets, and prepared the clapboards, which in their speech probably meant cask staves with which the ships were to be laden for their return voyage. Savages frequently visited them with friendly curiosity. Cheerful activity had somewhat stilled the wrangles of the voyages. Captain Smith, through a domineering will and the reputation which he enjoyed for his adventures, excited the jealousy of those who were ambitious of leading. Smith, as an experienced soldier, although not admitted to the council, 
probably gave advice freely as to the necessity of drilling the colonists and building a strong fort. The president, who was a merchant, did nothing further than to fortify the new town with boughs of trees cast together in the form of a half-moon. That was their palisade wall. Captain Smith's bold spirit was too useful to be neglected. He and Captain Newport, with twenty others, were sent to discover the source of the James River. They ascended the river as far as the rapids and planted a cross at the end of their explorations. They visited an Indian chief at a village named Powhatan, which was composed of about twelve cabins pleasantly situated on a hill surrounded by cornfields and fronted by three fertile islands. Captain Newport presented the chief with a hatchet, with which he was much delighted. The Indians complained at the intrusion of the English into their country. The chief, concealing his own apprehensions, said, They hurt you not. They take but a little waste land. When, however, the exploring party had returned to within twenty miles of Jamestown, they began to suspect treachery. On reaching the colony, they found that their suspicions were well-founded. The colonists, while securely at work and unarmed, had been attacked by the Indians and were for some time in danger of destruction. A crossbar shot from the vessel struck off the bough of a tree in the midst of the savages and so frightened them that they fled in every direction. Had it not been for this timely shot, attributed by some authority to the presence of mind of the president, Wingfield, the colonists would all have been massacred by the savages. As it was, seventeen men were wounded and one boy killed, while Wingfield had a narrow escape, an arrow passing through his beard. Warned by this attack of the savages, the president now had the town fortified with palisades, the guns mounted, and the men armed and drilled. The Indians hung continually around the white settlement, either making covert attacks or in ambuscade awaiting any opportunity. Stranglers from the fort, and there were many such, were often hurt, while the Indians always escaped by the nimbleness of their heels. Captain Newport, who had been hired only to transport the colony, remained six weeks. During this time the labor of the colonists was severe, with all the work which the immediate needs of the settlers called for, and the loading of the vessels for their return voyage. The settlers were obliged with their small force to watch at night and to guard the workmen by day. Captain Newport at last prepared to set sail. Captain Smith had been for thirteen weeks under suspicion, awaiting a trial. His natural leadership had already asserted itself, while his earnestness and straightforward energy had gained him friends and respect. His enemies, probably fearing for the success of their plans, proposed, out of charity, to refer him to the council in England rather than to subject him to a public trial at Jamestown. Captain Smith scorned their kindness and demanded a trial, which resulted very honorably to him. His accusers' witnesses confessed that they had been suborned. Smith was acquitted, and his chief enemy, the president, was condemned to pay Smith two hundred pounds, which was a fortune in those days. Captain Smith turned the money over to the public store. The good minister Hunt came forward and made peace on all sides, and through his influence and that of Captain Newport, Smith was admitted to his seat in the council. The next day all received the communion together. On the day following, the Indians presented themselves to desire peace, and Captain Newport set sail for England with good news from Virginia. 
left thus to their fortunes. It fortuned that within a few days the colonists were nearly all sick. The site of Jamestown had been poorly chosen. The adjacent swamps of the Chickahominy made it very unhealthy. The colonists had not become acclimated, and unusual toil in a summer's heat, to which they were not accustomed, with a scarcity of provisions, were the causes of this sickness. The council in London believed that they had plentifully provided the colonists with provisions, supposing that the voyage would be made in two months, and that they would reach Virginia in time to plant for themselves. They had, however, been five months on the way, and had thus missed the chance of raising a corn harvest. While the ships remained, the settlers had traded sassafras, furs, and money for biscuits, which the sailors would pilfer from the ship's store. Now their food consisted of a half pint of wheat and as much barley to each man, boiled in a common kettle. This grain had lain so long in the ship's hold that it was full of worms, and could not have been very appetizing to the sick colonists, who had no drink but water, and no lodgings, but castles in the air. Still, as their narrative says, the council in England was not to be blamed, since the fault of our going was our own. Every day during the month of August, fresh graves were dug. One day the cannons boomed in honor of the burial of Captain Bartholomew Gosnold, the explorer and one of the first movers of the expedition. To his loss, no doubt some of the later misfortunes of the colony were due. At the end of the summer, about fifty of the one hundred and five colonists had died. There was naturally much murmuring and discontent in this smitten and hungry colony. Had we been as free from all sins as gluttony and drunkenness, says their story, we might have been canonized for saints. They were evidently, however, not free from other sins. After the death of Captain Gosnold, contentions increased. John Kendall was deposed from his seat on the council and imprisoned for making trouble between the president and the other members of the council. Wingfield himself, accused of engrossing for his private benefit what delicacies were left, was also suspected of a project to flee to England with their little vessel. The dead spirits of the sick colonists were so moved that the president was deposed and confined upon the pinnace. He denied the charges against him in a statement written to the council in England, and it cannot be certainly known whether, as Captain Smith believed, there was truth in them or not. There is little doubt, however, that Wingfield was ill-fitted to fill the difficult office to which he'd been elected. With the council president, Wingfield, not only deposed, but being confined to the pinnace, an election was held, and Captain John Ratcliffe was appointed in his place. Those men who had survived during the summer had lived mostly on sturgeon and sea crabs. As autumn came on, the sturgeon failed them, and their supply of provisions had come to an end. In their weakened condition, they expected every day to be attacked by the savages. In this extremity, the Indians, however, proved friendly, bringing them plenty of fruit and provisions. Captain Smith's natural gift of leadership had asserted itself through the trials and dangers of the colony. From this time, the real management of affairs fell into his hands. The new president, Ratcliffe, and Martin, the remaining member of the council, were content to stay at home. By dint of good words, promises, and his own example, Smith got the men to work to build Jamestown. Some cut, others bound thatch, some built cottages, and others thatched them. 
Among them all were Captain Smith, taking always the most difficult task as his share. In a short time, they all had homes, except Smith himself. The superfluity of the Indian harvests in the neighborhood of Jamestown was being used up. Captain Smith resolved to go on a trading expedition into the Indian country. The colonists had no knowledge of the Indian language. Their force was small. They knew little about managing a boat without sails, and the men needed clothing and other necessaries. All these were difficulties in the way of the expedition. Yet no discouragement to the bold spirit of Captain Smith. With five or six men in a shallop, they started down the river. They stopped at the Indian villages of Kekatan, where Hampton now stands. The inhabitants scorned them as starving men. They would offer them a handful of corn in exchange for their swords or a piece of bread for their clothes. These were Indian jokes. Captain Smith, soldier that he was, finding that courtesy had no effect, tried force, though contrary to his commission. He suddenly let fly his muskets and ran his boat ashore. The Indians immediately fled for the woods while this company of six or seven men marched into their town. Here were great heaps of corn, and Smith had much ado to prevent the hungry soldiers from helping themselves. He kept his men in readiness, expecting an attack on the part of the Indians. In a short time, there was a most hideous noise, and sixty or seventy Indians, formed in square order, came dancing and singing out of the woods. They were all painted either black, red, white, or party-colored, and bore their oki before them, made of skin, stuffed with moss, painted and decorated with beads and copper. They charged upon the English, armed with clubs, shields, bows, and arrows. They were so kindly received, however, with a volley of musketry, that down fell their god, and diverse lay sprawling on the ground. The rest of the Indians had disappeared again in the woods. They soon sent a priest with offers for peace and the restoration of their idol. Smith made answer that if they would send six unarmed men to load his boat, he would not only return the oki, but give them beads, copper, and hatchets, and be their friend. Accordingly, they brought him venison, turkey, wild fowls, and bread, and were so pleased with the trinkets that he gave them an exchange that the last that the English saw of them, they were dancing and singing in token of friendship, though they were no doubt glad when the English were gone. The sickly season had passed, and the colonists were all recovered by the time of the return of the expedition. Captain Smith now fitted up the pinnace for a voyage in search of provisions for the following year. Meanwhile, he made several short trips into the country. On one of these journeys, he discovered the people of Chickahominy living on the river of that name. Martin was in ill health, and when Captain Smith was absent, all was confusion among the colonists. During one of his trips, Wingfield and Kendall plotted with some others to sail for England in the pinnace. Captain Smith returned unexpectedly. The plot was revealed to him, and he forced them to stay or sink after a skirmish which cost the life of Captain Kendall. Unless, indeed, Kendall was executed after a trial, as in some accounts. The President and Captain Archer entertained a similar project for abandoning the country not long after this, but Smith detained them also. Smith said at that time that the Spaniard never more greedily desired gold than he victual, nor his soldiers more to abandon the country than he to keep it. He had found an abundance of corn in the Chickahominy River. He made an excursion there 
and was received by hundreds of Indians with baskets of corn. Times of plenty had now come to the country. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. We need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. As winter approached, the rivers were covered with swans, ducks, and geese. With these, and an abundance of other game, fish, and fruit, the colonists were so feasted that Captain Smith no longer had to threaten the sinking of the little vessel to keep them in Virginia. But, as he said, their comedies never endured long without a tragedy. And the tragedy was soon to follow. And just a few footnotes on that chapter before we move to the next. The swampy lowland that they had chosen couldn't drain, and for that reason their latrines overflowed. The river water was too salty to drink, and the land around them that, that they could draw water from became infected. And now for some background on Captain John Smith. Chapter 5, Early Adventures of Captain John Smith. We now come to consider the adventures and explorations of the chief hero of the Virginia colony, Captain John Smith. In an age when romantic adventures were in vogue, he was the rarest of adventurers. From boyhood he led a roving life, wandering through Europe, fighting the Turks, enduring captivities, encountering pirates and shipwreck, and at last distinguishing himself by the ready stratagems and unfailing presence of mind with which he managed the savages in Virginia, and delivered the colony from destruction. At the early age of thirteen, like many another boy, he was set upon brave adventures, as he says. But he did not, like the usual boy of modern storybooks, achieve a brave career in an incredibly short time, and without any previous training. This remarkable man had already attained a great renown as an adventurer and soldier when he sailed for Virginia, being then under twenty-eight years of age. He was born at Willoughby in Lincolnshire in 1579. Never did a hero of romantic adventure come into possession of a more commonplace name than that of John Smith. His father came, it would seem, from an old and well-known family of Smiths and was a man of some means. John Smith attended the free schools of Alfred and Luth. To him, as all boys of a roving tendency, the sea seemed the only road to brave adventures. At the age of thirteen, he sold his school books and satchel and planned to run away to sea. The death of his parents at this time, however, checked his adventurous spirit for the moment. His father left him plenty of means, but his guardians cared more for the boy's estate than for the boy. Smith had liberty enough to do as he pleased, but lacked money. When he was fifteen years old, his guardians apprenticed him to a merchant of Lynn, because this merchant would not send him to sea, as Smith quaintly remarks, he saw no more of his master for eight years. John Smith had found a chance to attend the son of Lord Willoughby, who was going with his tutor to France. His guardians had found Smith a troublesome charge, and they gave him ten shillings from his own estate to be rid of him. At Orleans, the young nobleman met his brother, and having no more use for Smith, he was dismissed. 
He had probably engaged to attend him for his passage, but the young gentleman gave him money to pay his fare back to his home. John Smith had no notion of returning to England, however. At Paris he became acquainted with a Scotch gentleman named David Hume, who, if we rightly identify him, was a Protestant minister, the author of several famous books in English and Latin. He seems to have taken a great fancy to the adventurous boy, for he gave him money and letters to friends in Scotland who would refer him to King James the Sixth, at that time reigning in Scotland, afterward James I of England. Arriving at Rouen on his way to Scotland, and finding his money nearly gone, he better thought himself, and down the river he went to Havre de Grace. Here he became a soldier. When peace was concluded in France, he went over into the Low Countries, where he served for three or four years under Captain Joseph Duxbury. He probably belonged to a corps of English auxiliaries who aided the Netherlands in the struggle in which they gained their independence. He next resolved to deliver his letters. On the voyage, with his usual hard fortune, he suffered shipwreck and sickness. He at last arrived in Scotland, where he was most kindly treated, but he had not the means to make a courtier, nor indeed was the kind of man that dwell in king's houses. John Smith returned to his native town, where he was soon glutted with a society which was not to his taste. This young gentleman of nineteen resolved to become a hermit. He selected a little woody pasture, surrounded by hundreds of acres of other woods, where he built him a pavilion of boughs. Here he studied Machiavelli's Art of War and the writings of Marcus Aurelius, which he exercised himself with a good horse, his lance, and ring, after the manner of that time. In other words, he was trying to learn to become a knight. Like Shakespeare, he was guilty of breaking the game law, for he slightly remarks that his food was thought to be more of venison than anything else. This romantic hermit was much wondered at. An Italian gentleman, Signor Theodora Polologa, writer to the Earl of London, visited Smith, and by his fine horsemanship and good discourse, persuaded him to return to the outside world again. He stayed for a time with his Italian friend, but could not long be content with such tame pleasures as this life afforded. He had served his apprenticeship in the wars of France and the Netherlands. He now desired to see more of the world, and, lamenting and repenting to have seen so many Christians slaughter one another, he was ambitious to try his fortunes against those about killing whom he would have no compunction, namely the infidel Turks. Smith first set out for the Low Countries. Here he met four French adventurers, one of whom gave himself out as a nobleman, Lord de Pro, while the rest were his attendants. They formed a friendship with the young Englishman and proposed to Smith to go into France, where they might procure letters from the Duchess of Mercure to the Duke, her husband, who was a general in the Turkish War. They embarked for France, and on a dark night arrived at St. Valery in Picardy, the Frenchman planned with the captain to put them ashore with their own and Smith's baggage while he was to wait for the return of the boat. The captain did not return until the next night, saying that the sea was so high that he could not come, and that Lord de Pro had gone to Amiens, where he would await the arrival of Smith. This young gentleman was now left without clothes except what he wore, and without money except one small piece. The passengers were indignant at the villainy of the captain, and with the lawlessness of the times would have killed him, and seized the ship had they known how to manage it. 
When Smith came to shore, he was obliged to sell his cloak in order to pay for his passage. One of the passengers, a soldier named Kurzian Bear, informed Smith that this great lord who had disappeared with his baggage and money was but the son of a lawyer in Brittany, that his gentlemen were three young citizens, and that they were all errant cheats. Kurzian Bear promised to go with Smith to their home in order that he might get some redress. They journeyed through Normandy, stopping to visit the ruinous tomb of William the Conqueror, and arrived in Brittany, where they found the rascals. Kurzian Vare, however, could not help him, for he was a banished man, and dared not be seen by any but his friends. Smith was unable to recover his property, but his story became known, and some of the nobility supplied his wants and entertained him kindly. But this life did not suit the young man's independent spirit. He wandered on from seaport to seaport in search of a man of war. His money was at last all gone, and he lay down in a forest by a fair fountain, near dead with grief and cold. Here he was found by a rich farmer and relieved of his wants. Walking through the woods one day, he met one of the French robbers in a still more miserable condition than himself. Without a word, they both drew their swords and fought until the Frenchman fell. He confessed his robbery in the presence of the inhabitants of an old ruinated tower nearby. Smith got his revenge, but that was all. No money. He now traveled to the castle of the Earl of Ployer, under whom he had fought in the French wars. This nobleman refitted him and showed him the sights of the country. Turning out his road many times to see places of interest, Smith at last reached Marseilles, where he embarked for Italy. The vessel was crowded with Catholic pilgrims of all nations bound for Rome. They cursed Smith for a Huguenot, his nation for pirates, and railed on his sovereign, Queen Elizabeth. Smith was always a good churchman and a loyal subject, and being neither a very meek or patient man, it is probable that he answered them in the same fashion. Stormy weather forced the vessel to put into the harbor of Toulon, and again to anchor off the Isle of St. Mary, near Nice in Savoy. The pilgrims concluded that they would never have fair weather so long as Smith was with them, so, like a second Jonah, he was thrown overboard. Smith swam ashore to St. Mary's Isle, which he found inhabited only by a few cattle and goats. But he was not long destined to play Robinson Crusoe. The next morning he espied two other ships, which had been forced in by the storm. He was taken on board a vessel, commanded by Captain La Roche, a neighbor of the Earl of Ployer. For the love of this nobleman, Smith was well entertained. The French vessel sailed to Alexandria, delivered her freight, and coasted the Levant, rather to view what ships were in the road than anything else. In those days sailors were always on the watch for plunder. They met a Venetian argosy, richly laden. The French vessel attempted to be speaker, but the captain answered them with a broadside, probably expecting no better treatment from such as he met. Captain LaRoche immediately gave chase, giving her his other broadside, then his stern, then his other broadside, until the Venetian sails and rigging were so torn that she was obliged to stand and give battle shot for shot. Twice in an hour Captain LaRoche boarded her, and once the Argosy fired him, with much danger to both vessels. The fire was quenched, however, and the battle continued until the Venetian yielded. The rich vessel, loaded with silks, velvets, cloth of gold, and gold and silver money, 
was rifled of the least bulky part of her cargo. Smith was set ashore in Piedmont with his share of the spoils, five hundred sequins, and a little box probably containing jewels worth twice as much more. Having now both the means and opportunity, he was glad to better his experience by the view of Italy. In Rome he saw Pope Clement VIII, and saw his cardinals creeping up the holy stairs. Having satisfied his eyes with the rarities of the principal cities of Italy, he started from Venice for the seat of the Turkish War. It was 1601, and Smith, then but twenty-two years of age, reached Graz in Styria. The feeble Rudolph II, Emperor of Germany, was at this time waging war against the Turks, who had invaded Hungary and given the Emperor much trouble. Smith met two of his countrymen who introduced him to Lord Eberspot. This officer examined him and presented him to Baron Kissel, General of the Artillery, who placed him in the regiment of the Earl of Mildredge. The Christians had lost the strong fortress of Canisia, or Caniska, in Hungary, and the Turks were ravaging the neighboring country. They now laid siege with 20,000 men to Olympac, which was commanded by Lord Eberspot. All intelligence and supplies were entirely cut off from the beleaguered garrison. Baron Kissel had come to the assistance of Olympoch and wished to send a communication to the commander. It was impossible for a messenger to pass the Turkish ranks. At this juncture, John Smith appeared before the baron and told him that he had previously explained a method of telegraphy to Lord Eberspot, and that if he would take him to some place where a torch might be seen from the town, he would undertake to communicate with him. He explained his plan to the baron, who allowed him guides to take him on a dark night to the top of a mountain seven miles from Olympac. From this point, Smith showed three torches at an equal distance from one another. After waiting a while, he saw that Lord Eberspot had guessed the meaning of this, for three answering lights appeared from the town. Smith's plan was to show one torch a corresponding number of times to the place in the alphabet of the letter which he wished to designate. By this means he spelled out the words, On Thursday, at night, I will charge on the east. At the alarm, be ready. The answer came from the town, I will. This mode of telegraphy is ancient, and Smith had probably found it in his reading. Smith also proposed that on the night of the attack several thousand matches should be fastened to strings, stretched suddenly upon a line on the plain, and fired, an instant before the alarm, in order to deceive the enemy as to the place of the attack. The night arrived. The Turks, hearing the report of the matches, supposed it to be the firing of musketry, and their force was immediately directed to that quarter. So great was the confusion produced by the false alarm, the real attack in another quarter from Baron Kissel and the sally of Lord Eberspot, that the baron put two thousand good soldiers into the town before morning, and the besieged succeeded in procuring an abundance of provisions from the Turkish encampment. The result was that the Turks abandoned the siege. As a reward for these services, Smith was given the command of a body of two hundred and fifty cavalrymen. Duke Mercury, as Smith calls him more properly, the Duke de Mercure, under whom Smith served, now undertook the siege of Alba Regalis in Hungary with a force of 30,000 men. Smith, with characteristic readiness of resource, had invented a sort of bomb made of earthen pots filled with an explosive mixture 
and thrown from slings. These were put in use at the siege of Alba Regalis, doing much execution and firing the suburbs several times. One suburb of the city was strongly defended by a muddy lake and thought to be impregnable. Earl Wasperine, however, provided every man on a dark night with a bundle of sedge and reeds, which they threw before them, and thus crossed this lake, so surprising the Turks that they fled into the city. The inhabitants of the other suburb, not understanding the cause of panic, followed suit, so that it was readily taken by the Duke. The city, not being so strong as the suburbs, was battered with the ordnance which had been captured. The Sultan had raised an army of sixty thousand men under the command of Hassan Pasha to march to the relief of Alba Regalis. Hearing that the city was lost, he still continued his march, hoping to retake it. He was met by the Christians, twenty thousand strong, on the plains of Girk. A fierce battle was fought in which the Earl of Meldrich and his men were so surrounded by the semicircular Turkish regiments that they were thought to be lost, but were relieved by other brave leaders in the Christian army. Captain Smith was severely wounded and had his horse shot from under him, but he was not long unmounted among so many riderless horses. Night closed the contest, and another action followed, in which the Turks were defeated with a loss of six thousand men. The Duke de Mercur now divided his army into three parts, that under the Earl of Meldrich being sent into Transylvania, whose prince, Sigismund Bathory, was both contending with the Emperor of Germany, and, like the Emperor, was waging war against Turkey. The Earl of Meldrich was to join the Emperor's army against Sigismund. This service was distasteful to him, since he was himself a Transylvanian, and probably sympathized more with the prince than with the emperor. His men were mostly adventurers who had entered the service to fight the Turks, and were anxious to serve where the most booty might be obtained. Their pay had been poor in the emperor's service, and they were easily persuaded to follow their leader, who offered himself to Prince Sigismund to fight the Turks, then holding that part of Transylvania where the estates of his family were situated. Earl Meldrich made incursions into the mountain regions infested with Turks, Tartars, robbers, and renegades. These were forced into the city of Rigal, which was so surrounded by mountains that it was entered only by difficult passes and seemed impregnable. Meldrich, with 8,000 men, began the siege of that city, or, as Smith poetically states it, the earth no sooner put on her green habit than the earl overspread her with his armed troops. The Turks were so well fortified and garrisoned that they scorned this army. The Christian forces were soon augmented, however, by the arrival of Prince Moises with 9,000 more men. The strong fortress was so well situated that they could neither frighten nor hurt the Turks, though, who grew insolent while the Christians were preparing to plant their ordnance saying they were at pawn, and grew fat for want of exercise. This challenge was one day received in the Christian camp from Regal. That to delight the ladies who did long to see some court-like pastime, the Lord Turbishaw did defy any captain that had the command of a company who durst combat with him for his head. So many were ambitious of fighting the Turkish lord that it was necessary to draw lots to see who would go and fight him. The name of Captain Smith was drawn. The day of the contest came. The ramparts of the town were all beset with fair dames and armed men. 
With the sound of hot boys, the Lord Turbishaw entered the field finely mounted, splendidly armed, and with a great pair of wings fastened upon his shoulders, compacted of eagle's feathers, within a ridge of silver richly garnished with gold and precious stones. Before him went a Janissary bearing his lance, while one went on the other side leading his horse. And I'll take a moment right now to explain that a Janissary is a captured white Christian boy who has been trained in the Muslim ways, brainwashed, and made ready to sacrifice his life for any reason, fighting against his fellow Christians. Testing, testing, one, two. And so John Smith, serving in the cavalry of Colonel Valdo, Earl of Meldridge, led by French knight, the Duc de Mursur, who was a knight of the Order of Saint Esprit, and who had been assigned to battle the Turks. As they challenged the Muslim mountain fortress of Rigal, drew by lot the opportunity to accept the challenge of Lord Turbishaw to enter a duel to the death, fighting his knights on horseback, as was the custom of the day. The scene that played out in front of the fortress walls must have been spectacular, with the upper ramparts of the city fortress lined with the sultan's women and soldiers looking down upon the battlefield, where stood an army of 10,000 Christian soldiers. Many battles like this marked the beginning of the fall of the Ottoman Empire, which had spread through Eurasia, and the fighting was brutal and bloody. The trumpets blew, and the two horsemen, Smith against Lord Turbishaw, headed toward each other with lances ready. We'll be back with Part 4 next Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Time at 1001 Stories for the Road and Captain John Smith and England's attempt to colonize Virginia at Jamestown. Right now, we're getting some history on Captain John Smith and what had prepared him for what he was going to be facing in the New World. Meanwhile, please leave us reviews for 1001 Stories for the Road at Apple so we can grow and move higher in the Apple rankings and get more listeners. And tell a friend about us. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week.